Hello, everyone. We are very excited to have Carol Spencer, former designer for the Barbie doll, on our podcast today. We first learned about Carol when she participated in a webinar with National Arts Club. Carol is the author of Dressing Barbie, a celebration of the clothes that made America's favorite doll and the incredible women behind them. She started working at Mattel in 1963 and created the image we know of as Barbie. She worked there until 1999. We cannot wait to learn all about her incredible career and book. Thank you, Carol, for being here. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I was quite surprised when you invited me, pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Thank you so much. So excited about it. Of course. Well, Barbie wore clothes <laughs> and wears clothes. So the style that binds us is, is fashion in any shape or form. And as mom will mention, she absolutely loved her Barbie dolls and the fashions that they had. So, Carol, talk to us about what led you to working at Mattel. Well, I needed a job. I was sick and tired of the snow and cold weather uh, in the upper Midwest where I grew up, went to college, Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and then I worked later in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was even colder with more snow. And people who live in the snow country can understand that. <laughs> and so I started looking and I found blind ads for a designer in California. And I thought, oh, that's heaven, palm trees. The snow does not fall in Los Angeles. <laughs> and so I pursued it. And I, um, I eventually got the job uh, and moved to California. That's amazing. I loved it. In fact, in the beginning, when I was going to start working as a designer for a doll, and I thought, is this for real? Mm -hmm. I do real clothes. And then I realized that that's exactly what they wanted. And... I grew to really love the job, love creating for the uh, 11 and a half inch doll. And, you know, I pursued it throughout my entire career, although in different forms throughout different years. Mm -hmm. mm. It's magical. And so we absolutely love that you did not pursue working in one of the five jobs available to women at the time. And you push back on the status quo. There was even a fiance situation. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, when I found out that I would become, quote unquote, a Stepford wife, mm. was not happy about being ruled by his parents and him. Mm. And when I said no to something, which I can't remember what I said no to, <laughs> but that was the end of everything because I could not say no. And of course, you know, you sit down, mm. you cry when you break up. I mean, this, this is traumatic, especially when you're 17 years old. Sure. And uh, I had just graduated from high school and I had the only job I could find because I'd been trained as a secretary. And I learned that office work was not for me. So I had to explore and find my path. 
And I did the same thing that many people do today, although they do it on the computer. But I researched newspapers. I, I looked as hard as I could in magazines to find a path. And finally, I found an article about a seminar put on by the Fashion Group Incorporated uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I attended that and I discovered that my interests in fashion in making clothes for myself, but not really the way the pattern said. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I'd learned from my grandmother, that it all added up, and that's where I wanted to be. That's just so fascinating. It really is. I mean, it's so, um, like, adventurous of you. And, you know, you're so brave and courageous and everything to, to you know, not just do what everybody else was doing. Well, you know, um, I was sort of on my own. I was mm -hmm. uh, raised by an aunt and uncle after my parents died, mm -hmm. but you know, I didn't have the parents there, although they my aunt and uncle were my second set of parents. But um, I, I just had to venture out on my own to find my way. Well, the thing about that that's, that is a positive thing is sometimes, you know, parents you know, want to protect you, but they, you know, they, they kind of expect you, well, you're going to go to college and you're going to get married and you're going to have babies or whatever they see, you know, as the, the right path for you. And instead, because you had to, you know, because of circumstances, you had to be your own advocate and, and find something you ended up having this, you know, amazing career. I mean, uh, <laughs> touching so many lives that you'll never even know. I know, and I've heard from so many people who've played with Barbie, and I remember when I was interviewed, oh, sometime in the 90s, and the reporters kept asking me, do you have any children, which I don't have, mm -hmm. but my answer was always, I think of every child who played with the Barbie doll as my child, mm -hmm. and in that regard, I have the biggest family ever. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. I really do. I, I just have so much admiration for you and all of the people. And I was thinking about with Barbie, it, for me, it was, I mean, I loved, you know, the Barbie house, the Barbie, whatever that big, you know, where they could live, the um, dream house. The Barbie dream house, but also the big um, mobile home or whatever you call it that I had, you know, they could go on trips, but mainly it was about the clothes for me. It was the style. I just, you know, that was the thing that I was, I was less interested in telling the story than I was. I mean, you know, I had Ken and of course Skipper and everybody, but um, it was all about the way they dressed for sure. You know, in the beginning, uh, the plan for Barbie was definitely the wardrobe. It was dress on dress, mm -hmm. and it grew out of paper dolls. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1940s, uh, you know, when you really couldn't get a lot of things, right. uh, I remember watching for the Sunday paper because they always had a Brenda star that I could cut out, and mm -hmm. she was right next to the comic strips. It came with some wonderful, wonderful clothes. Mm -hmm. And I played paper dolls for years as a child. 
And so I, it was a natural walking into it. But, you know, slowly um, the dress undress had to evolve because we were evolving. Television mm-hmm. was taking over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all kinds of things were happening. So uh, when you ask about um, what, what did we design, what did we do, we watched what was happening within the world. Mm-hmm. And what was um, uppermost, what became pop culture, because basically pop culture was what the children were interested in. That's interesting. And the children were getting it from what was on TV and things, right? The yeah. things that were seeing in the world around them. So walk us through the way, the process of designing the clothes. Well, you know, it was different in every decade. Ah, um, in the beginning, we had total free reign. Um, uh, we knew that they were going to have X number of fashions at various price points in the line. But basically, in the 60s, uh, the doll was basically evolving. Uh, the plan was for her to become as lifelike as possible. So the first thing that happened, uh, I think that was about 63, uh, she got bendable legs. Mm, I remember that. And then in 1968, she got a twist waist. Mm-hmm. And also a voice. Oh, with a little string in the back. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. I forgot. And, you know, it, it just kept evolving. So the fashions kept evolving. But... Up until I think it was 215 or 2015, I should say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when Mattel came out with uh, the Barbie that were like me, where they had the tall, they had the petite, mm-hmm. they had the curvy, and they had the regular, they had all different sizes. Mm-hmm. That wiped out fashions mm. because basically to make those wonderful styles you had to do it on one body it would mm-hmm. not fit all dolls at all the doll bodies mm-hmm. and, but up until that time um there was a rule that it the fashion had to fit all the uh doll bodies that had ever been created wow <laughs> well we kept we kept them the same mm-hmm. but as people change, you know, I'm not the same weight I was back sure. when I started in 1963. I gained quite a bit of weight. Right. Me Can't too. take it off. Same. <laughs> but, but, you know, we all are different. And so that in 2015, I think it was, that was when Mattel addressed that. But mm-hmm. today, um, uh, Barbie is going strong. Mm-hmm. I think it's because of COVID-19 and the lockdown. And I'm hearing from many parents that they stop the, uh, the screen play, uh-huh. the screen edu- uh, education mm-hmm. takes so much time. They feel that the child needs time away from the screen. Mm-hmm. So they, the child is exploring uh, Barbie again. And playing with her and also games, all kinds of things away from mm-hmm. the computer screen. 
or the telephone screen or whatever screen they have. Right. And, you know, that's hard on your eyes, too. It's hard on your eyes and it doesn't give you time just to think, just to go into your imagination and and role play and all of the other things that are so important, um, you know, as you as you're growing. We had role play throughout the years, but we in the very beginning, we pretty much designed fashions that were understandable to a child and we linked them to um, a play pattern or to something that the child might be interested in uh, by giving them small accessories. And by the way, we made all the accessories. We did the whole thing ourselves. We did not have model makers like they do today. (laughs) Ah, wow. Those little shoes. The shoes, um, the sculptors handled the shoes. Mm -hmm. That that they did. And those shoes had to fit uh, the various feet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like my Barbie clothes had like little Velcro on them. Did they uh, have Velcro like in the back of a dress kind of? Velcro came in roughly the 70s, I think. Ah. In the 59 and the through the 60s, it was snaps. Snaps. I remember the snaps. Very tiny little. Tiny. And buttons with loops. Mm-hmm. Loops. Mm-hmm. That frequently broke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then you're out of luck. <laughs> but in the 1970s, um, we had a lot of safety rules come into effect. Oh. And those safety rules changed a lot of things with toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a small parts gauge. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing could be smaller than that unless it was really attached to the Uh, fashion or the doll or what have you Mm -hmm. but um what was i going to say the how did they do that uh, with like the shoes added flammability Mm. uh actually the dolls do not burn so if your house burns you can go and find your doll she won't be damaged that's great (laughs) that's great yes that's so great Uh, her clothes you know, uh, we couldn't have anything that was at all flammable. And in places like France, who had the strictest rules, and by that time we were, uh, sale, sales were worldwide. Mm. Um, they, they had the strictest rules, so we could not use anything that was sparkly like rhinestones wow. or certain beads. Everything had to be a certain kind of plastic that was dull and did not look sparkly and pretty on fashion that was very fancy. Wow. Dress up. So that was actually, in my mind, the beginning of the curve Mm -hmm. between collector dolls and dolls Mm -hmm. for children. Because Mm -hmm. dolls for children were age graded. Mm-hmm. Barbie was age graded uh, three to six for most of them mm-hmm. uh, because the younger child was playing with it by that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also tried to have some uh, six to 10, I think it was. And, but then with the adults, the collector, we could go wild and have. Mm-hmm. So it, it took until 
roughly uh, 1990 before Mattel had a collector division separate uh -huh. from the, the other division. But throughout the 80s, I think it was Dolls of the World that started with um, uh, appealing to both the adult collector as well as the child uh, collector. And how are you able to, like in America, when you were designing a Barbie and the clothes and it was international, were you able to have sparkly fabrics and things in America or was that across the board? Um, basically, in the United States of America, uh, we did not have a strict rule, but Mattel mm -hmm. had the rule that the product had to be saleable worldwide. Mm. So we went with the strictest regulations. Mm. Mm. And that, along with in the 70s, that oil embargo, um, mm -hmm. Anyone mm -hmm. alive today knows you couldn't get gasoline for your car. And they were yeah, I remember that. Uh, that was when petroleum-based fabrics, um, and there's a great many polyesters are all petroleum-based, for one mm -hmm. thing, spandex mm -hmm. is. Um, all of those fabrics uh, were very expensive when they were available. Mm. And so that's when Barbie uh, followed the California trend in fashion, where the music scene mm -hmm. was was really uh, the scene. And we had uh, a lot of cottony dresses, a lot of long dresses, uh, like the flower children were wearing and mm -hmm. some of the other musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, with all the popular songs, I won't go into all of the uh, artists, but uh, you know we had Woodstock, the late '60s. <laughs> Barbie you went know, to Woodstock. We followed all of that, and that lent itself to designing fashions. So it wasn't just following Paris or something right. like that or New York. Right. Right. It was, it was following trends. What was happening? Yeah, that's so interesting. I remember a, a sort of a wrap dress that was like psychedelic colors kind of and, you know, very 70s. But I was trying to think it must have been made of cotton instead of polyester. The Barbie uh, dress, the Barbie dress. A lot of them were made out of cotton and uh, rayons, of course, were available. Oh, okay. Uh, nylon, nylon, uh, I think I'm sure we had nylon, but that yeah. was a certain association with petroleum. But uh, you know, and nylon grew out of uh, World War II when they made parachutes out of it. Ah, so you know, there's a whole history of right. fabric uh, textiles. Right, um, what you get, and we we had to be aware of of everything that was happening, the fabrics mm -hmm. that were trendy, the mm -hmm. fabrics that children would like, but um, actually the concept was mm -hmm. foremost and then how we executed it, what we did. For like small motor too, right? For children to be able to, with their little fingers, to be able to, to put the clothes on and off and everything. Well, actually... Um, 
when we made the bendable leg, mm -hmm. the company wanted uh, the doll as realistic as possible. She did not, we did not want the joints to show. So there was kind of like a, a skin that was over all of that. Yeah, kind of and rubber. That would tend to become a little bit sticky if mm, yes. through play. Yes. And that was hard as the age um, range of children playing with Barbie lowered, which it did because of all this technology, everything that was happening in the world. Mm -hmm. um, the youngest child could not dress the doll easily. Mm -hmm. So I attended, I think it was 1978, um, a focus group, a market research focus group in Kansas City, I think it was Kansas, um, where the parents were talking about giving Barbie dolls to children as young as two years. Wow. And also giving them as baby shower gifts. Oh, my goodness. And that was where I conceived the idea of my first Barbie, that mm. legs that uh, were not sticky, one mm -hmm. leg permanently bent, the other leg was straight. Mm -hmm. But uh, where it was easy to dress for the child. And so that was where that came about. Well, today they don't need her any longer because Mattel found out that um, children and adults alike don't care if they see the joints. They want a doll that's posable. Mm. So the dolls are easy to dress. They're slippery. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. I remember bending those knees and I feel like I bent them so much a little, the joint did poke out eventually. <laughs> I hear you. It happens. It happens. Right. So when you would make these collections, how many outfits would be released at once? Well, normally um, we would release the new uh, dolls and fashions for Toy Fair, which was, uh, it started in January in Europe and early February in the United States. Okay. That was one line. There were a few years that they released them uh, mid-year, but uh, then they started doing like early ship. But the very first line, let's see, I counted that, had 22 fashions and uh, one doll that came with two hair colors. And the price ranges ranged, now I'm talking wholesale, not retail. Mm -hmm. from a dollar <laughs> up to five dollars mm -hmm. for, for the bride and weddings were very uh very desirable children played with them a lot today no way um, and slowly they added new styles in 1961 they added seven styles uh, and then they added you know more they added dolls can came out uh, 61 or 62 Skipper and Allen uh, Midge came out uh, Midge came out in 63 the year I started so Midge and I love Midge. are in the same sorority <laughs> I love that I love that that's so funny that you said the Barbie the bride Barbie is not as big a deal because then that was you know our goal little girls grew up and got married and I mean 
you know, I married every, every little boy in my neighborhood. I feel like by the time I was six. (laughs) (laughs) So that's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah. It mirrors the times, you know, anyway, um, you know, they would add, uh, different designs. Well, then in the seventies, we went into Barbie, let's see, um, live action dolls, Mm. which was another doll where she could pose on a stage and she had a special um, stand. And when you turned a lever or something, the stage would rock and music would play. Um, And anyway, uh, so we had, we had that, the live action dolls and they were basically the hippie type. (laughs) I did for PJ, um, the long fringed vest. Oh, I think I had that. That she wore with uh, the jumpsuit with gold boots. Yep. And uh, my friend Judith Brewer Curtis um, designed Barbie, a tie dye uh, fashion. And by the way, uh, Judith, after she left Mattel, um, she went on to Warner Brothers and she designed the very first Wonder Woman costume. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. Uh, that's, and, yeah. Well, you know, a lot of us uh, stayed friends over the years. Sure. The same as uh, my class at MCAD in Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, we, we were, you develop friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the early years, we weren't competing the way we did after the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. There, it was compete, compete, compete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do you think that was? Was it getting to be a smaller field, or no? Um, they wanted to find the best positioning, um, and. Charlotte Johnson uh, was manager of the department. She was um, the first Barbie designer. And she believed that designers should be separated. And mm-hmm. if there were four, they should each have an office in the opposite corner. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Anyway, we, we competed. And okay. marketing uh had developed in 1968. It was merchandising before that. You know, a lot of things have evolved and grown. Uh, The world is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. Um, And after this lockdown of COVID all Mm -hmm. over the world, I think you're going to find a lot more changes coming Mm -hmm. about that weren't apparent before it. I think you're right. I think you're most definitely right. So everybody needs to watch out and be prepared to learn new things. Right. Which is kind of exciting, right? Because I had a philosophy that every change was an opportunity. That is so true because change can be really scary for people, but if they can think of it as an opportunity, then it's Mm -hmm. exciting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, starting in 1980, um, after we had gone through a whole long sports era in 1975, I think we came out with um, Superstar Barbie. Mm-hmm. Uh, each one had uh, various fashions. They were any place from four to six 
in different groupings, different price points uh, were the groupings. But then Mm -hmm. starting in 1980, we came out with several lead doll categories. And each lead doll category had six fashions. So you see, nothing remained the same at Mattel. And then in 1990, we grew into uh, the collector market. And I went into that. Mm-hmm. In 1990, we had both uh, the children's line and also the collector line. Oh. And that, that went on. And in the collector line, we got into wonderful things like um, the great eras. And we went to various movies and recreated the family mm-hmm. the movies. Uh, we, we, we had just a wonderful, wonderful time with that. I never knew that that was two different things. Well, you know, I thought they were the same doll, but some people took really good care of them and kept them in their box and they became collector's items. Um, But I didn't know they were made to be, you know, these special dolls. No, but in the 1990s, I see because of all the safety rules, what you couldn't, could not do. Right. That was what separated it. So by that time, However, people loved the early lines because we had such detail. You know, things run their course as people change. Mm-hmm. We kept hearing more and more about uh, from the people who were unhappy with the doll, that it wasn't like them. Oh. So, that that led Mattel to make some real changes. And even though they still have the original Barbie, mm-hmm. they added the other three dolls. And then they went further into um, licensing from uh, various high fashion designers mm-hmm. because they found that uh, they had really run through a lot of other uh, scenarios. And so that was uh, ideal. And Vera Wang's wedding gowns, of course, always sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had other people who did wedding gowns, but they were only the collector uh, area. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we had high fashion uh, designers all over Europe. Uh, as well as the United States. And, of course, the first uh, licensed product, the first licensed fashions, were the Oscar de la Renta fashions of the 1980s, I think about 88 or 87, right in there. Anyway, and what he did, he lent his name to the product. He did not design it. There's two ways that the designers do that. One is by lending their name and someone else designs the product. And the other one is uh, they and their staff actually design the product. And so uh, I've heard people say, oh, it was the first human design. Well, not really, because I designed the blue gown in the first line and Kitty designed uh, Kitty Black Perkins, our African-American designer who, who 
you know, we all competed anyway. Uh, Kitty designed uh, the sophisticated uh, golden black and Janet Goldblatt, um, who had a totally different uh, take on designs. Uh, and she loved high fashion and really exaggerated designs. And she designed the other two. And then she went on to do the rest of the Oscar de la Renta line. So, uh, would you design it and then he would okay it? Or did he just say, go for it and never look back? Well, they had to present it to him. Okay, and that's what I was wondering. So they, they took the first group of fashions and we, did, we each did more than one. Uh-huh. Uh, they took it to New York where he lived, had mm-hmm. his studio. And uh, they had them lined up on a conference table. Mm-hmm. His people were in the room along with our people. Mm-hmm. Um, designers, of course, were not there. And Oscar came in. He had his, and here's the story I heard. He had his hands behind his back. Mm-hmm. And he walked the length of the fashions, the, dis- the dolls mm-hmm. wearing the fashions, examining each one visually, but remember his hands were behind his back. He was not bending. And then he walked back and he nodded his head at the four designs that he would put his name to. Oh. And then he exited the room without saying one word. Oh, wow. That was the first. I I don't, I didn't hear stories about any of the others. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. But I just heard a lecture the other day, and this person was insisting that the first human designers uh, had designed. Well, I think the Barbie designers were all humans. I know. (laughs) Everybody has their own take on things, but that's the actual story. Uh, Bob Mackey, throughout the years, did his own fashions, had his people execute uh, the first gown and work with our staff to replicate it. Okay. Um, But then it was pick and choose. Some designers would send loose sketches. Mm -hmm. Others would uh, actually make a garment. So I I don't know all of the stories that I could relate. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah, the thing when we were watching the National Arts Club webinar that mom was reflecting on was that the clothes that she initially was drawn to, that ended up being her style aesthetic as an adult. Oh, my. Yeah, definitely. I'm telling you, I was hugely influenced by your designs, most definitely. You know, I you know, I'm pleased to hear that. But, you know, Barbie entered the world as a teenage fashion model. And she was dressed any place between 18 and 35 or 40. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I had so many. So many. And, Carol, how far in advance would you work until it would come be available to purchase when you were designing the, the clothes? Well, Normally, it's 12 to 18 months. Okay. 
uh, it you know, it varies. Sometimes if they have the fabric, because usually the fabric had to be made special. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, because we couldn't get uh, fabric on the right scale for Barbie. Sure, with the print and everything. Yeah, that makes sense. The prints, uh, the other things, the colors and so on. Because we would hand dye things uh, to get the right colors, uh, you know, on certain brocades and things like that. Mm -hmm. So then they'd have to uh, replicate it. But, uh, and it, and it takes time to get in line for all of this production. Sure. And then um, the plant has to actually make the garments. Mm -hmm. And then they have to uh, ship them in uh, cargo ships. And so everything is tested up uh, to uh, not have any problems up to the heat of 250 degrees. Wow. <laughs> that, that's hot. <laughs> you never know where these cargo ships are going. Right. And it takes time when you get it onto the ship until it gets to its destination. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. So uh, it's not like flying and you do it in a matter of 12 or 15 hours and right. in another continent. Right. Uh, right. Like fashion designers now doing six collections a year. There would never have been a way that you all could have done that. Well, we didn't have the means to put it out uh, right. to market that way um, simply because Toy Fair was once a year. Right. So and, and so uh, that, but, you know, it took time to get the line going and to go through all of the processes. Well, this six collections a year has not worked well for designers. They're overworked and their creativity shot and they're all, you know, just a mess. They're very unhappy. So that's one of the things hopefully that is going to come out out of COVID is that, you know, it, it, things do take a little bit more time because like you said, they, you know, they take, it takes time to do all of that and do it well, right? Yes. Yes, it does. And, you know, to find the things and today with, with COVID, but there's so many new technologies, new, yeah. new fabrics, uh, sustainable fabrics. How, mm -hmm. how are you going to do that? Right. Uh, you know, uh, the old fashioned cotton is certainly sustainable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yet, uh, we still have cotton fields in the South. Yes. But all of our textile mills are gone. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a shame. It is a shame. It is uh, a shame. They, they should really be finding new technologies where it, it isn't the sweatshop that it was to produce textiles and other things in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. they, they should find that. And of course, we tested um, various sewing plants to see if they could actually make Barbie clothes in the States. Right. And they discovered, uh, and this was before my time, they discovered that most people in the United States uh, and Mexico and so on had larger fairly large hands and they did not like mm -hmm. with uh the tiny garments 
And so that was why they went to Asia, to Japan first, and then they spread out into other countries. But a lot of Asians, especially right after the war, mm-hmm. uh, being malnourished and so on, they were smaller people and they were had smaller hands and they could do it easily. More like children's hands. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I happen to have very small hands and you'll find that the majority of the early Barbie designers did. Today, um, it, it's a process. It's done on a computer to see a sketch first, right? And then they approve the sketch, and then it goes to someone else to interpret the sketch mm. into a pattern, and then a sample maker sews it. Mm-hmm. And so it goes through a process of people. Whereas in the my years, mm-hmm. the designer did not have to execute a sketch because they felt that sometimes there was too much detail in the sketch and it didn't look right when it was actually in 3D on the, on the doll. Ah. Um, and so I, I could do, I, I love to drape on the Barbie doll. I love that so much. And to do gowns, things like that. Yes. And um, so I, I personally directed my sample maker, and we, we could turn out quite a few new fashions uh, a lot faster than they do today because they designed by committee, I think. And that's uh, although Mattel would not like my saying that. <laughs> that's so interesting because there are a lot of designers that don't sketch, you know, that we talk with, and they love to drape and, you know, that's uh, such a such a talent to, have to be able to do that. Well, I look at it as um, sculpting on the doll. You're sculpt actually sculpting the gown. That's wonderful. That's- uh, but today, there is sculpting on computers. Right. Exactly. It's just not the same. I don't think. And you know, when you sculpt like a doll, which might be a replica of a person. You can have it perfect on both sides, but no person is identical on each side. If you look in the mirror, probably oh, yeah. one ear is a fraction of an inch lower than another ear. Oh, absolutely. Eyebrows, everything. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, they, they get all this perfection, but is it really... Um, like a person or is it an inanimate object? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, who, who knows? <laughs> oh my goodness. And Carol, how do you keep up with the pop culture or how did you and what was happening in the world? Um, well, of course, by listening to both television and radio. Okay. Um. Time Magazine, Life Magazine. Magazines. Uh, I live very close to Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. Um, I could keep up with fashion just taking a walk down Rodeo Drive. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also close to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Uh, Melrose Avenue back in the 60s and 70s. I think in the 80s it started going away, but 
they had all of the beat fashions. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Sunset Boulevard, uh, West Sunset had a different group of styles. Um, there, Santa Monica mm-hmm. Beach was right here. Venice Beach was right here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you had the beach scene. I could go to downtown Los Angeles and go to California Mart and see what was there. You could just walk through, see all of the uh, display windows of all the shops. Um, and I think they still have fabrics uh, like open air markets, although I haven't been down there for a long time. And some of the major fabric stores are gone. Oh, I know. Terrible. Yeah. So uh, today, I guess you go to Joanne online. If you're lucky. Right. Right. Most of them are gone. I don't know how people do that anymore. Well, over the years, I bought fabrics that I dearly love. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've got quite a stash. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And so, Carol, let's say, okay, we're going to do Malibu Barbie. So did you, would you go to a fabric store? Like, how did you design her clothes? Um, well, I would be influenced by the beachy scene, what was being advertised mm-hmm. in the newspapers, because there were lots of things advertised. There was always a whole page of beachwear for guys. Mm-hmm. depending on what age. Um, uh, in fact, that was how I started out with the right swim trunks for mm-hmm. the can, the new good-looking can that came out in 69. Right. And uh, if you look in my book, Dressing Barbie, uh-huh. at the page where I have uh, the dune buggy. Right. And all the dolls around it, uh, you will see Ken with his fashion. And then you'll see um, Brad, new good looking Brad. He was our our black friend, uh, African-American. I don't know what term to use today. No, I think it's okay either. I think black is fine. Anyway, he was the friend and uh, he's wearing one of the fashions. I didn't have two of the other around and I thought, hey, he looks good in that other fashion. And so, you know, it it just kind of uh it it flowed because it was what I was seeing around me. It was what was fun. Right. The rest of the nation wasn't there Mm-mm. in California for that California fresh fashion look. They're having all of those movies. I think they started in the late 60s. Um, uh, And the California girl came out of it. And who was was in those movies? I can't remember all those names. Right, all those girls. But that's how the rest of us in the world that weren't in L.A., we just saw it from the movies. So then when we saw it on our Barbie doll, we felt like, you know, we were really we were really involved in all that. Yeah. A part of it. Right, right. Well, I was right here. Mattel was uh, here in the Los Angeles area, although uh, the city was Hawthorne, California, just south of the airport. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. LAX. And but you know, it's like one big city. You don't know where one starts and one no. stops. Uh, totally. Most and, definitely. Uh it was uh very close to the beach. We mm-hmm. you know, temperature was always beach weather. Mm-hmm. Um it was less than a mile from the beach. And I'm about four miles from the ocean where I live. That's great. It's it's not far to go to some of these places. Right. And of course, you know, uh, we we all enjoyed doing beachy things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, doing, um, and all the singers, the rock groups. Sure. Um, you know, all of that. It, it was the scene. Sunset Boulevard was hot. Right. Absolutely. And so it was easy to find what interested you. Mm-hmm. And there was never only one designer for Barbie. And we each had our own uh, styles, mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. own likes, dislikes, and so on. Mm-hmm. But this is good because... Not one of us are identical. Right. And we, we all like different things. And so it helped to reach a great many um, people. Right. Mm-hmm. So That's important. Awesome. Yeah. I always struggle finding the balance between sitting down and working and going out and absorbing culture and living life and reading the magazines and <laughs> all the things. So... Carol, talk to us about attending Paris, New York, any of the fashion weeks for inspiration for Barbie's clothes. Well, basically, um, the only person who did much traveling was Charlotte Johnson. Mm -hmm. And uh, she would go occasionally to uh, Paris. Um, But we basically never went to fashion week in new york that's Mm. more recent what um mattel and the designers do Mm. Uh, but in my years no Mm -hmm. Uh, charlotte would travel to asia to get uh, each new line uh, to make approvals uh right at the source to get it into production quicker Mm -hmm. and she loved traveling and of course she had been uh in japan for that first line for over a year living and working at the um, Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. And that was the one that Frank Lloyd Wright designed. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that as uh, about you, Carol, did you got to travel some, didn't you? In your career after Charlotte retired mm-hmm. that I took over many of her duties um uh for travel and that was how i was able to go to uh actually move to hong kong mm. for a couple of years and That's open great. my own design studio in hong kong and that was quite amazing be- becoming an uh, expatriate <laughs> that's just amazing that you got to have that experience and I was able to travel all through China and Korea, of course, South Korea, mm-hmm. uh, Taiwan. Uh, I was in Thailand. Mm-hmm. I never got to the Philippines because 
where I would have gone in the Philippines, there was a lot of unrest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, uh, you know, it, it was wonderful um, actually experiencing in the 1980s uh, life in Asia as it was becoming westernized. Mm-hmm. Mm. Fascinating. And you got to have your own design studio. Yes. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. So that, that was fun. But it was such a reach because all of this um, creativity, the trends, whatever was happening at home uh-huh. was not exactly reaching me in Asia. Ah. So, I mean, it was a stretch. Right. Uh, to hire, then that would have meant uh, I did have one um, Chinese designer. Mm-hmm. And she was great, uh, and Chinese sample makers, and they they were all wonderful. And of course, a secretary mm-hmm. who, uh, who got me through the translations and all of that, <laughs> and who was a genius at uh, computers, because by that time, by the eighties. Computers were taking over uh, most right. businesses. And, you know, I, I learned typing in high school. And then right. I learned uh, at Minneapolis College of Art and Design. But this was before computers. It was the, mm-hmm. uh, the hands-on way of designing, of interpreting, wow. as opposed to doing it... Um, with a stylus or whatever you're doing it with. Uh, I, I don't use that today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, if I were 20 years younger, I would have my 3D printer and I would. <laughs> but let me tell you, I don't have room for it. Right. And, you know, what am I going to do? I, I don't really have that incentive. Uh, I understand that. I'm, to do it today. I, I'm just so thrilled that I was able to write my book and have Harper Collins actually uh, agree to publish it, and it's doing rather well. Oh, yeah. Good, even with the close down. Because last uh, in 2020, uh, I got to one speaking event. Oh, no, uh, and then everything kind of clamped down right so i went to facebook to explain my book and i i had quite a quite a time in fact i've i've met people from all over the world who are reading dressing barbie and telling me how much it inspires them and how they relate to this chapter this rather than that decade but Mm -hmm. that's fine yeah Careful. So, uh, you know, I look forward to doing, you know, a lot more this year, probably if right. I do. Yeah. Uh, I'll start traveling again as soon as I get that COVID vaccine. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are so sorry about all. I know you've had a lot of really exciting plans to celebrate the book. So we hope that that can definitely happen this year. Right, 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 right. Just a little postponement. <laughs> yes. Very much. Oh, 
So Carol, what did you think about when designing Barbie that would impact the child? So for the child thinking about their future, resolving conflicts, improving their dexterity, things like that. I really didn't think about those subjects, although they all occurred. Okay. Um, what I thought about was, first of all, uh, you want to have a product that is enjoyable, fun for a child, uh, something that they relate to, something that they will enjoy playing with, and something that is right on trend-wise um, and kind of appeals to them. Uh, it wasn't actually until I think it was 71 with the Get Up and Go series that we actually started tackling um, the NOW movement, National Organization for Women, mm -hmm. where they were trying to advance women. And so we, as a lost leader, we put in uh, careers. And the first one was Barbie uh, Dr. Barbie, and she was also a surgeon. So it was a doctor or a surgeon. Well, it has turned into Surgeon Barbie because <laughs> the rest of the world, and this I had to learn later, that when you, uh, you call a doctor a doctor here, and they can be either a doctor or a surgeon. Right. The rest of the world a surgeon has totally different education, nowhere near a medical doctor. Wow. They're never called a uh, doctor. They're always called surgeon. They do not wear the white coat that a doctor here does. I mean, there's all these differences. Oh, but in the beginning, um, I happened to have a biopsy, and I saw... Uh, exactly what my doctor was wearing. Mm -hmm. And I called him doctor, whether he was a surgeon or sure. whatever. And uh, and everyone else in the room and so on and so forth. So um, that was how I had something that was really realistic about the design. Oh, and I have a funny story to tell you about that. Um, uh, in putting the accessories in, um, I we used to check out uh, this one shop in the farmer's market in, in Los Angeles that had all kinds of little uh, oh, uh, tchotchkes, different things, right. miniatures, what have you. And there was one group, Grandma Stovers, and they were just about Barbie scale. And I picked up some of the medical things. They they had a stethoscope, and so I didn't have to try to make a stethoscope. Well, that's right. And they also had a little box that said pink pills. <laughs> well, in the seventies, you know, I didn't, I wasn't into the drug scene, right? But I'm presenting this product, and they zeroed in on the pink pills. They were methamphetamines back then. <laughs> oh my God. So let me tell you, that went. <laughs> <laughs> but it was talk of Mattel at the time. You know, you, you were to some of these things, but I thought pills and 
Barbie's color was pink. Of course. Smells very <laughs> innocent. That's, that is a no-no. <gasps> That's hysterical. <laughs> you you just never know, do you? You would have never thought about that. I I didn't. I I had to really research it, and I asked a lot of people, and I found it online that it had been called mm-hmm. pills back then. But let me tell you, there were those uh, in marketing and other areas of Mattel who knew. Oh, how funny! <laughs> hilarious. That's hilarious. What all the, what guys, all the guys at Mattel had their beards and their long hair. Oh, and, funny. I would have never picked. Well, I guess it was Californian. So. Yeah. I yeah. mean. What worldwide happenings provided challenges in designing Barbie's clothes? Well, we talked about this. The fabrics, not, not being able to get the fabrics when the petroleum was. Um, the safety laws. Mm-hmm. Right. I would say that that was the greatest. Mm-hmm. Well, what did you have to change as new laws developed? I guess I think we talked about about that okay. when the safety laws changed so we can go to virtual age. Okay. In a virtual age, how can parents get children to play with physical dolls or games? Maybe COVID helped in that. Well, they are actually being able to get them to play with it. And this year, uh, Mattel put out, I think, four different uh, candidates for president. For oh, and as I understand it, that was one of the biggest selling Barbie dolls. Wow, that's great. But um, they also have, let me think now, um, a, a complete exercise group. And so that helps. Uh, the children to exercise mm-hmm. as they play with the Barbie dolls, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Uh, but they link Barbie to computers, but they uh, explore other areas too. So uh, they're they're finding that the child needs relief from the computer, mm-hmm. and I hope that that continues. And of course, a lot of people. I, I've heard from many people, like in New York City, where they don't have, their building doesn't have a good reception for uh, Wi-Fi. Ah. So if the building doesn't have it, in fact, I talked to one uh, movie producer, and he had to go to the library that was near his house and of course it was closed, but they had the Wi-Fi on. So the area around the library, people would go and sit and use their computers. Children would go and sit and take their classes because they didn't have it in their apartment buildings. Wow. Many, many areas that kids can't get uh, the Wi-Fi and all that. So they're still playing the old-fashioned way, you might say. Right. Hands-on. But, you know, there's there's a wealth of ways to play. And I don't think uh, playing like this will ever, will ever go away. Right. I sure hope not. And, Carol, talk to us about diversity and Barbie. Well, diversity, I think I looked it up in the dictionary. It has to do with classes and races and 
um, we wanted Barbie to be universal in the 1960s. Uh, we added friends of different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. um, we were testing to see how sales went. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you don't put out a product that is not going to sell to a certain degree. Right. And it took until, what was it, 19, uh, 1980, I think, before they came out with the first Black or African-American standalone Barbie doll named actually Barbie as opposed to being a friend. Mm. And also uh, a Hispanic Barbie doll mm -hmm. named Barbie. But she did not, the name Barbie was mm -hmm. not with uh, the other ethnicities until 1982. And that was when we came out, oh my God, I can't remember the name of it. Um, I, I keep calling it straight and curly, but mm -hmm. that, was a nick, uh, that was one of the nicknames throughout while we were working on the doll, a working name. And uh, Afro hairstyles were quite the rage. Mm -hmm. And we were able to get a, a solution and a way of putting, the child would put the solution on the hair and it would become straight and long. And then you wash it out and then it would go back to curly. And let me tell you, it made the most wonderful Afro hairstyle. So we had um, uh, both a black doll and a Caucasian doll, and they both were named Barbie. And then the following year, we came out with Twirly Curls Barbie, and that version came in um, both African-American or Black, uh, Caucasian, and also Hispanic. And so that was, that was the first that we were able to have sales sufficient to mm -hmm. do. But within designing from roughly the mid-70s, um, I competed with Janet, who was... Um, um, she was Caucasian. Uh, she was from uh, New York, I think. And uh, Kitty Black Perkins, who was our African-American designer. Mm -hmm. And we each had our own strengths. Mattel was not prejudiced. Uh, they would not allow any prejudice. But we, we competed against uh, each other. For the lead doll, and let me tell you, we had, you know, it, it was strict competition, but <laughs> uh, but the strengths came through in various areas. So mm -hmm. as far as diversity goes, um, I grew up in Minneapolis and left there at a time when it was considered to be the place that was not prejudiced. Today, I think mm -hmm. a lot of things have changed. But back then, no. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't. And I had friends. Um, in fact, I still have friends with Jade, uh, who was uh, Chinese. Mm -hmm. 
and you know uh, other friends uh, uh, of various ethnicities, but we didn't worry about uh, what eth- uh, where people were from. It was more how we could enjoy life together. Mm-hmm. Right, and you had a diverse team yourself, so obviously you would be designing in a diverse way. Yeah, from the mid seventies through the end of the nineties. So, yeah, that's great. Uh, it was uh, we, we had our own strengths, and we uh, appeal different customers uh, would of course buy our, our what we designed. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Quickly walk us through a day when you were designing Barbie. What was your day like? Arrive at the office at eight a.m. sharp because we had hours uh, to mm-hmm. keep. Um, and then uh, depending on if there was a meeting, there might be a meeting early or maybe not. Uh, and get right into working on the next product, um, how, however it would be. Uh, at 9.30 was first coffee break. Mm-hmm. And I think today it's kind of lax. Uh, I don't know if they're back at Mattel or not, but Mm -hmm. uh, they probably don't have coffee in various stations around because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, And hopefully they have larger offices than what I saw when I was last there. We we had Mm -hmm. sized offices. Um, But, you know, get into it and uh, working towards meeting the deadline. Mm -hmm. And working with uh, our sample maker or two sample makers, I used to consider the persons who sewed the samples, which we called a sample mm-hmm. maker, um, as my third arm. Ah. You know, we, we used to work very closely together. Mm-hmm. And in order to produce the product, and I would know immediately if a pattern worked, because I did the patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it did not work, uh, what changes? And we would build the garment um, and then dress it on a doll and so on and get it ready to show at a certain point. But you never had just one going. You had more than one. Oh. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, there were meetings to present. Mm -hmm. Uh, The days, they changed. And if you needed to find something, you would uh, go out shopping if you needed something that you didn't have in house. Mm-hmm. Um, if you needed to find, let's say, a plain color fabric because you wanted another color, mm-hmm. uh, usually my sample maker would dye the fabric mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because we we had to have custom things. Uh, we could not sure use prints from. Uh, a United States company because um, uh, we we were producing it in Asia. And in the early years, uh, they did not ship to Asia. <laughs> so we, okay. we had to design our own prints. We, we had so many different things that we had to do. And, uh, you know, it was uh, the day went. And of course, we were uh, in the very early years, the handler years, um, 
Phyllis Fredericks was a game designer. And in the afternoon, she always sneezed. Not once, <laughs> but three times. And then you would hear, like you used to hear on the Waltons. Right. And people were saying, Gesundheit. Oh, how funny. Gesundheit. <laughs> Bless you. All of the, they would come from all over because you could hear because it was, <laughs> we had these, you know, portable walls. Right. And we were really uh, one big, uh, so to speak, happy family. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Competitive but happy. <laughs> and, you know, I loved the early years, what I call the handler years, and they left in uh, about 73, I think. Mm. After that, it became, uh, you know, very professional, very competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, boys' toys against girls' toys. Well, we won. Oh, how funny. <laughs> but, uh, well, Barbie sold better than the books. Of course. She was the original. Do you Barbie. have any tips for people on how to navigate a, co- a competitive work um, culture? Well, um, I kept my head down. I tended to what I knew best, what I was expected to do, what I wanted to do. And my politics were no politics. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everybody does it in their own way. Right, right, right. Uh, I didn't get into uh, any kind of a confrontation. Uh, I didn't didn't feel that was appropriate. Right. Uh, So. You stayed in your lane, but you also... You, you you didn't like give up yourself in the process. You did what you wanted to do and what you needed to do. And then you went on with your life. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's good advice for everybody. And I also tried to stay educated for whatever was happening new. And there were so many things that were happening within the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take classes at UCLA, night school classes. Wow. And things that were developing that you would want to know. Um, Sometimes I would go to Beverly Hills High School at night school. Wow. Uh, They don't have night school classes anymore, but that Beverly Hills High School is where I learned uh, computers. I think that's why you wrote a book at your age. Because you kept learning, you kept being curious, mm-hmm. you know, you are still in the thick of things. You are still, I'm sure you're still curious now. I'm sure you're still learning. Um, you better believe it. I'm learning Zoom and <laughs> all these platforms and so on. Right. Like you and I are learning about Zoom right? <laughs> as we speak. Oh my goodness. Carol, what kind of classes did you take besides computer? Well, at Beverly Hills High School, I also took photography from the Beverly Hills photographer who had been a protege of Ansel Adams. Wow. And that was where I learned techniques on lighting Mm. that I actually used when I shot more than half of the photos for dressing Barbie. Yeah. That makes sense. That's great. You put the knowledge to use. 
and at UCLA, I took whatever classes that they had on when, when you asked about how I, in, in the competitive field, right. I took various classes in um, uh, getting along with people, that sort of thing. That's great. Uh, they, they had a lot of that at the time. Right. And I also uh, worked on my um, master's degree in business administration. Wow. And I stopped that without mastering or graduating from calculus. Hmm. Because I had the opportunity to move to Hong Kong as an expatriate, and I figured calculus was not going to do me much good. <laughs> I think you made the right decision there, most definitely. Yeah. So anyway, but I do have a professional designation of business management. Yes. Degree from UCLA, as well as Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from Minneapolis College of Art and Design. That's Wonderful and very inspiring. Mm -hmm. We talked about this before. And if you have anything else to add about how your designs for Barbie changed over the, with time and over the decades. Well, uh, because I followed what was happening. Um, uh, they changed as we changed. Mm -hmm. That's about all I can say. Uh, you know, you grow as a designer, you do different things. And, but I always researched. Uh, like with the great eras, I researched each era with, uh, I did the Gone with the Wind series. Mm, I remember that. And I went to uh, LACMA. Um, oh, we've been there. And what I did. Uh, I went into their uh, archive area mm -hmm. and they actually opened the drawer and pulled out uh, one of the costumes made from the uh, fabric that was produced uh, back in the thirties for gone with the wind. Wow. And that, and I took photos of it and it was actually an enlarged miniature print that was prevalent back uh back in the time of uh, the 60s when Gone with the Wind was mm -hmm. set. And I was able to photograph that and reduce it. So mm. Barbie as Scarlet. Was it green and white? In, yeah, the green and white, the barbecue print dress. Right. That dress has the only authentic replica print from... Um, uh, the actual barbecue dress that was the screen dress. That is so bad. Uh, uh, you know, there have been so many different uh, dolls with uh, that particular dress, but each one has a different print. Right. So I wanted to make sure that my doll had the right print. So we yeah. actually licensed that print uh, from LACMA. That's fabulous. Really wow. interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the next question, so with your designs for Barbie, what example were you trying to set or message were you trying to send? If any, maybe something you were hoping to guide them to dream or maybe a new career to think about? Well, the message changed. Yeah. Throughout the years. 
I know in the 80s, when I did the fantasy astronaut doll, um, a friend of mine had given me a magazine that showed the new ill wax uniform for women astronauts. And of course, we were going to have the teacher go into outer space Mm -hmm. on the Challenger. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, astronaut Barbie was timed for that. Mm. Um, But when we went through child test, which we did on every design, Mm. um, we found that children were fearful of outer space. Mm. And so that's why uh, I did uh, the fantasy version of the astronaut uniform uh, went on that particular doll. And then I created the whole fantasy series of uh, fashions because at that time we had a space vehicle for Barbie, a space capsule. Wow. I missed that. It would, it would open up and she would have a place to sleep. She would have mm-hmm. a car. So each uh, costume was designed for a different uh, thing that she was going to do when she got to the moon or wherever. But as it happened, um, it was good that we learned that children were fearful of outer space. Most because happens. as it happened, I think the Challenger disaster oh, occurred wow. one week before Toy Fair. Mm. So we quietly put that away. Yes, that's great. Because yeah. I was thinking, I was a kindergarten teacher and we you know, were watching it. And um, I was watching it with my class. And imagine if they'd been sitting there with their Barbies. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Well, it, anyway, but what we found, though, because Mattel came out with an astronaut Barbie in a more realistic uh, uniform mm-hmm. about 10 years later was that the healing that occurred mm-hmm. during the interim after that disaster actually helped children um Think about outer space in a different way. Oh. Well, that's great. Sometimes a disaster creates something. Something good comes out of a disaster. Right. Is a disaster. A disaster. But maybe just talking about it out in the open and really understanding more and um, all of that. So that's a very interesting point you you make. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh that's great. So, Carol, we love it how you sign your emails, Barbie Love. That always made us smile when we were conversing with you. Well, I forget how I got into that years ago, and it just stuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. And then tell us the story about meeting Yves Saint Laurent. Well, um, I was a member of Fashion Group Incorporated, and so okay. was Charlotte Johnson. And at that time, uh, this was the late 60s when the Mondrian collection came out. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the Fashion Group still had uh, luncheons, wonderful luncheons, where they had actual live models showing the fashion creations. So we attended those luncheons instead of going to market week or Mm -hmm. Paris or what have you, we, we went there. 
And so we went to this famous restaurant that's long gone, but it was called Perino's. And uh, after the uh, fashion show was over, uh, we had uh, some kind of an invitation for it, a very nice invitation. And so I decided I wanted to get Yves Saint Laurent's signature. Mm -hmm. So I went up to him. I wanted his autograph. Mm-hmm. I went up to him and I asked him for his autograph and he looked at me and he said, and what do you do? And I said, I'm a Barbie designer. Mm-hmm. And he said, a Barbie designer. He said, I always look at the Barbie line to see what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how fabulous. Oh my gosh. That's so great. That's so amazing. Well, that's one of them. But what are some of your other favorite stories from designing for Barbie? Goodness. <laughs> They're probably in the book, right? We need to get the book and read it. Everyone listening. Quite a few of them are in the book. But, you know, it's. I remember them when uh, something occurs that brings sure. them to mind. Sure. So I can't just reel them off. Right. Absolutely. Well, that's like saying, what are some of your you know, favorite stories from your life? It's a lot. It's a big loaded question, but I think it's one that um, leads us into talking about this book. Definitely. We're yeah, so excited yeah. about the book. How long did it take you to write it? Oh, goodness. Maybe 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, I had the dream of writing a book on the Barbie doll. And I knew that Mattel did not allow anyone, any employee to do something like that. Oh, I see. So I was able to get a license to do the book uh, while I was still employed in 1998. Wow. And then shortly after I retired, I was going to do it. And the people in licensing said, no, you're retired now, so this is null and void. Oh. So I I just kind of let it go for a while and, you know, thinking about it. Uh, and I was writing it. Uh, maybe I was going to go self-publish, what have you. So I, I was doing a lot of work on it, off and on, uh, as I was doing a lot of other things, transitioning mm-hmm. into being retired. Right. And so I... Um, I, I, you know, I had quite a few friends uh, from Mattel who were no longer with Mattel. Mm-hmm. Uh, one with them was Gwen Floria, and she wrote the book Barbie Talks. And oh. she and a friend of hers were trying to get a uh, a reunion from Mattel employees in Las Vegas, where she lived. And as it happened, she had been approached by uh, a screenwriter um, some years before on, on her book, Barbie Talks. And by the way, if you want to find out what Mattel was like in the early 60s, <laughs> you get a hold of that book. <laughs> um, uh, she invited me to help write it that was when when they were working on it and i knew i couldn't do it because i was still working at mattel Mm -hmm. 
But uh, that it, it is a fun book. Anyway, this screenwriter had optioned every book on the Barbie doll with a shopping rights contract. And she came to this reunion and I met her and she was intrigued by my story and pursued it. And uh, together, um, I was able to uh, fulfill getting started, taking that next step forward. And through friends of mine at Mattel, not in licensing, but um, I, I was able to get the law department at Mattel to recognize that there was no time limit on that contract. Oh, that's great. And so that was how the whole thing kind of started and grew from there. And, you know, a lot of a lot of things happened along the way. But uh, then once Harper Collins decided that they would do the book, that's when you start rewriting it all over. <laughs> that's when you get really busy, I bet. Yes, yes. And that was when uh, that spring... 2018, uh, from roughly January, I think the last picture I shot was something like June, maybe July of that year. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I shot more than half of the pictures that are actually in the book. Uh, for the simple reason, I couldn't afford to hire professional photographers to do it. Well, they look great. Thank you. That was all that knowledge gained first right. at uh, in college, mm -hmm. and then through this uh, protege of Ansel Adams. Right, exactly. And I don't know if you knew that at the time that you would be no idea how to do that with your own Barbies, propping them up and doing all of that stuff. Yeah. So it it was quite a production. Mm -hmm. It was fun. It was exciting. I'm so happy that you got to do it. I really am. I think and it's wonderful. People all over the world are reading my book. Mm -hmm. And if you, if people don't have a copy of it, uh, the young people especially are finding so much inspiration for taking challenges. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've had so many uh, messages on Facebook, on my Facebook page mm -hmm. um, from people all over the world. And then some of them I meet on LinkedIn. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of fun to see what each person thinks of dressing Barbie and how they relate to right. what I show, but also to what they played with. And they tell me about it. And, oh, I love hearing those stories. Mm -hmm. And how you had such a big role in it. It's just a remarkable thing. It really is. Yes. And you didn't think of yourself as Barbie, but Barbie was your muse. And tell us about how she sat on your shoulder. Well, you know, she was always with me. I can remember um, window shopping in Beverly Hills. and. I would I would look at the people that were on the street, but I would never see their face. I I knew they were there, but I was looking and making mental images of their clothing. Mm -hmm. And so and I remember passing a friend 
And she actually had to stop me. She said, you didn't see me. (laughs) (laughs) But I was I was with Barbie and we were talking about, well, is this, you know, is that right? Right. it, It was kind of fun. I love that so much. And is there any advice you have to give that one should keep in mind during their career besides learning? Well, uh, other than learning, you know, at Mattel, if your product sold, you had the opportunity of continuing employment. (laughs) So throughout my career, I always had a plan B and a plan C. Ah. If, what if? And I'm happy to say that when I retired, I chose my date of retirement. <laughs> Isn't that great? But you always, you were prepared. Mm-hmm. Well, Just in case. You know, I had bills to pay. And- right, 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 right. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think you're such an inspiration. I really do. Well, thank you so much. And it's such a pleasure talking with you. Well, we we know we're hoping very much that COVID will be, you know, in our rearview mirror soon. And so my next question is, what's next for you? And I'm hoping the answer is you're going to get to get out there and meet even more people and have them fall in love with the book and you. Well, I've already got a couple of tentative appointments to get out there and meet something very special with the book. But. You know, we're on lockdown right now. Right, right. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm scared. I just don't want to catch that thing. No, no, no. We've all got to hang in here a little bit longer and then just keep in mind, you know, warmer days and, you know, you're going to be getting out and about and telling about your book in person. And we just have to hang in there a little bit, a little bit longer. But in the meantime, If it weren't for COVID, I don't know that we would have ever gotten to talk to you ever. You know, we wouldn't have been at home watching the National Arts Club and finding out about you in the book and then asking you to please be on our podcast. So um, none of our audience necessarily would have gotten to know about you either. So it's, you know, it's been it's a fascinating time we're living in. You know, it is. And this is a totally new medium, something we didn't think about five years ago. Right. Maybe. They didn't think about doing this. So um, I, I just like to explore new things and take life as it comes. I think that's another great piece of advice because some people just like it. Well, we've always done it this way. You know, they're not open to, it seems like sometimes the older we get, the less interested we are in learning new things and pushing ourselves out there. And um, and so I think in that respect, you're, a, you know, you're someone to be admired and to, you know, to learn from, too. Well, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. It's true. And so, Carol, where can people find you? And is there an event list that we can get on for when events can start happening again? I do not have an event list at the moment. Okay. Um, do you have a website? Mm-hmm. I do have, I, I'm on Facebook. Okay. I believe I sent you a link to it. Yeah. Yes. I'll include a link in the show notes. Yeah. But if you uh, Google Carol Spencer Barbie mm-hmm. 
Uh, you'll find a lot of things where I have been. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Facebook, um, uh, you have to, I think, find it through the link because, you know, Spencer is the 17th most popular name. <laughs> and there are a great many people with the same name. <laughs> so I'll follow the link that you give. Um and I think I, I gave you some good links. Sure. And the name of the book is? Dressing Barbie by Carol Spencer. It is on Amazon.com. Great. Um, it pops up if you say Dressing Barbie, Carol Spencer. Yeah. Dressing Barbie. And you can also find it in bookstores, whoever's open. Right. Right. Other, other stores online, but I haven't research them lately mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. and we're going to include links to her book her website her facebook the national arts club webinar so all of that will be in the show notes and i loved i found this quote somewhere and it says as a little girl in minnesota we used to dig in the dirt trying to get to china mm-hmm. well i got myself to china and all over the world barbie changed my life <laughs> <Her did. laughs> it's a wonderful wonderful story Absolutely. Still changing it. Yes. Yes, exactly. And you're changing other people's lives too by having written the book and just by talking to us and reminding people that to keep exploring and learning always. That's right. Yay. Well, thank you so much, Carol, for your time and all this knowledge and information. And everyone, we will see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Binds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe.